we've been talking uh, over the past couple months now about what it looks like to live on mission together. Um, last week, we talked about the prophet Elijah and how he accelerated the promise of God, the, um, the promise of God even just, just for rain. And when it comes to the acceleration of a promise or a vision, I just want to highlight something really quickly. Like, God is really, truly accelerating uh, his vision of having a hope center in, uh, in our downtown Biddeford. Um, and I just, I, I see God moving, not just in like idea or dream, but I see God raising people up, uh, that it would be a, a, place, a, ho- a place of hope and healing for people who desperately need it, people who uh, need a place that, where we can come alongside and empower individuals and families and meet not just physical and emotional, but also their greatest need, which is the encountering the compassionate love of Jesus Christ. And so I just I took a risk a few weeks ago and just started speaking it out. What I just know is in the heart of God for our city. And what amazes me is uh, how God is just like connecting hearts and uh, with with that vision. God has been speaking to so many of you. Uh, to volunteer your, your gifts, your talents, your passions. And even for some have even said, like, I, I just feel like the Lord has told me to like give financially to make this vision into a reality. To, I love what we do in Fort Biddeford, but I just believe in the heart of God that it wouldn't just be an event that we do once or twice a year, but that we would have a presence in our city uh, that, is, uh, that is really, truly uh, boots on the grounds, 24-7 church, meeting, meeting the needs and being, um, being a presence in our city. Amen? It's awesome. I'm just excited about it because it's all him. The God just said, like, literally, Justin, just speak it out. And, I, and people and, uh, are just, like, rising up and connecting to that heart and to that vision. So um, things are moving, moving really quickly behind the scenes. It's, uh, it's absolutely uh, astonishing to me. Um, so turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you've got your YouVersion app or, you know, we'll have it up here on the screens, but it's great if you've got a Bible, a paper Bible, or your, your YouVersion app that you can follow along. We're going to actually pick up where we left off uh, last week in talking about the prophet Elijah. So let me give a quick recap, literally a 30-second recap of what we talked about last week in case you weren't here or you have a very short attention span. First uh, Kings 17, let me give you a recap. First Kings 17, the prophet Elijah hears from God to go tell king, the king, King Ahab, that it's not going to rain or even do from that day forward until he speaks again. And so uh, there's a drought for three and a half years. No rain, no dew, no nothing. Elijah hears from God again uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, and God says, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I'm going to send rain on the land. So Elijah goes, he presents himself, he goes to find Ahab, uh, finds that the wheels have come off the bus. King Ahab, Queen Jezebel have turned away from worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, and they are now worshiping false idols and false gods uh, in Baal and, and Asherah. And so Elijah is like, what's going on? So he, he had, like, calls a throwdown, and it's him against 450 of these false prophets. And he's like, look, here's the deal. We're going to build a bonfire, and um, you call on your God, I'll call on my God, the God who answers with fire. 
that's the one true God. You guys can go first. So all 450 of them start you know, yelling and dancing and praying and cutting themselves and doing weird like occultic practices and all kinds of stuff like that. And, and Elijah's like taunting them. He's like, hey, maybe you need to talk louder. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. You know, you need to like get his attention. And they're like all day long, just dancing around trying to get their God's attention. Uh, nothing happens. And so Elijah's like, you guys done? Can I try? And so he steps forward, has his servant pour water all over the wood, all around the whole like bonfire area. And then he steps forward and calls down fire from heaven. God shows up in a mighty way, obliterates this, this whole like bonfire. Everything's like gone. Like the water's gone, the, the wood's gone, everything is burned up. And all 450 of these false prophets are killed. He goes up on the top of Mount Carmel and he begins to pray, pray in the rain. Three and a half years later of no water. And he sends his, his, his servant, go look, go look, is the rain coming yet? He finally sees a little tiny cloud on the horizon, like the size, it says, of a man's hand and believes in faith that God's sending the rain. And so he's like, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot because you don't want the rain to stop you. I hear a storm brewing. And so he, uh, the rain starts pouring all of these things. Elijah gets so stinking excited that he, uh, he's running in the power of the Lord and outruns the chariot. Uh, absolutely amazing day. And then we get to 1 Kings chapter 19, the very next verse, the story takes a drastic turn, drastic turn. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse one says this. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of them. It's a pretty big deal. Um, sends like a threatening message. I, I, I want you to notice that she sends a messenger to do it. Like she doesn't send an army, um, which after this banner day, I would be a little concerned. I feel bad for this poor guy that is sent with this very threatening letter to say, hey, uh, essentially Jezebel's going to kill you. Um, he just slayed 450 false prophets. Feel bad for this guy. I'm sure he went in with a little bit of fear and trepidation. I think that Jezebel knows that she has no power to come against God's prophet. I mean, who sends a messenger ahead of time to say, hey, just so you know, tomorrow I'm going to kill you. Like, that seems kind of a, an odd thing for anyone to do. I think she knows that the only power that she has is the power of intimidation and harshness. She only has the power of intimidation because here's the reality. She threatens to kill him, but she couldn't actually do it. I think she knew exactly that she couldn't do it because if she could have done it, she would have done it, but she hasn't done it. I think she got exactly what she was hoping for, which is to get him to run away, to leave, to just get out of Dodge. Because as long as he stayed around, her gods couldn't. And that was proven. And I think sometimes, I bring this into like modern day terms, like I think that sometimes we as Christians fail to realize the power of our presence as Christians. Um, your presence is light in darkness. Your presence 
changes the atmosphere of every place that you go. If you um, are carriers of the Spirit of God, then that means that your presence changes your workplace. Your, change, your presence changes your family. You're like, but I'm the only one that serves God in my entire family. Like, I'm telling you, your presence makes a difference in your family. Your presence makes a difference in your neighborhood. Your presence makes a difference on your team, in your class. And if the enemy can get you to leave, to run, to flee, to remove yourself, then there's no longer a kingdom influence, a light in the darkness. I think this is exactly what she was hoping for. Maybe I can intimidate him enough that he will leave and remove his presence so that we can begin resuming our worship of false idols the way that we were before. But as long as he stays, we can't do that. And I think I would say this as a, like some admonition to some of us, like sometimes you just need to settle it, like settle your calling, settle the fact that like God has placed you in the place that you're in, that you are called, even if it's hard, even if you feel like, Pastor Justin, you don't understand, like I am the only Christian in my whole workplace. Like I, I am, that's it. Like I, sometimes you need to just settle the fact that you're called even when it's hard. Um, to settle the fact that the, if the enemy can't kill you, He'll just try to get you to quit. And this is what happens with Elijah in verse 3. It says this, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read that, this seems a bit uncharacteristic. I just went through like, and gave you a highlight film of like 1 Kings chapter 17, chapter 18. This guy is a beast of a man, right? Like, he doesn't seem to have any fears of anything at any time. He is so sure of his faith in God. He's calling on fire from heaven. He's pray praying in the rain, all of these amazing things. It seems uncharacteristic of this guy. All of a sudden in verse three, he's afraid and ran for his life. What in the world happened? He had a banner week. And he goes from running in the power of the Lord to running for his life. Now look at what happens after this. It says, Elijah ran, afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey, catch this, into the wilderness. Now, I've been camped out in verse three for like days. What's interesting to me is that I've always thought Elijah was so overcome with fear that he was just running away from his life. Like he was just so scared. Oh my gosh, Jezebel, she's going to hurt me. She's going to kill me, all these things. But what's odd to me is this dude never struggled with fear. Like all through we see his life and now all of a sudden we're like, he's really like running away. And we see even later in verse four, he's like, ah, oh, just like take my life. I just want to die. Here's the reality. If he wanted to just die, he could have just stayed. Jezebel would have done it for him. Like like she was ready. Like if he really was in this place of like, oh, I'm so scared, I'm so scared. Like I just want to die. Like just hang out then. Just like stay another day because like by that time tomorrow, she was pretty much going to try to do something, right? I actually think that he wasn't running for fear for his life. I think he was running from his life. I think he was running from his mission. And it's interesting because isn't that what hinders us in living on mission? It's not so much that you have absolutely no idea of the passions that God's put on your heart. 
For, for every single one of us, there are like, there are aptitudes and giftings and talents and passions that God has placed on the inside of us. Whether we're fully aware of them or not, we're not completely unaware of, of just things that maybe God has given us a love for people in certain areas of our life. It's not that we have no understanding of that. And it's not that we are so petrified of the devil that we're like, oh my gosh, oh, the devil's coming and I gotta get out of here. I'm gonna run away and run away from the devil. It's not even that we, we think, oh, God's not with me. That he hasn't given a track record of like him loving me and providing and doing all of those things and being a good God all of these years. It's that we get tired. It's that we get exhausted. It's that we get weary when things don't turn out the way that we expected them. And one of the hindrances to living on mission may look like fear, but it's actually weariness. We get weary and our weariness leads to weakness. And we, we find ourselves in this place, not necessarily, it looks like fear, but it's not actually fear. In fact, when it says that Elijah was afraid and then ran for his life. That word afraid actually could better be translated as Elijah looked at his circumstance. It's translated fear in the NIV, but other places you can let, it's actually could just be translated, he just saw. <laughs> Have you ever been in a place where you just saw, like the thing that was right in front of your face, the, 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 the thing that seemed so insurmountable, you just saw it and just decided, I'm done. I am... I'm not afraid of it. I'm just exhausted by it. I'm not afraid of it. I'm just so weary and losing heart. I don't want to deal with it anymore. That's, that, that, that's the thing that more times than not causes us to walk away from the thing that God's called us to. It looks like fear, but it's actually weariness. And if you're like, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Okay, well, look what, he, look what he said. Verse four, it says, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. And then these are his words. I have had enough, Lord. I've had enough. That's, that's not words of a guy who's peeing his pants because he's afraid of Jezebel. That's a guy who was completely exhausted. He's weary and he's like, not more. I mean, I've done this. I've tried to do the right thing. I've obeyed you. I've done the things that you've asked me to do. I've been pray praying. I've been doing all these things. And now this, like I have had enough, Lord. Because when we see, what we see with our eyes doesn't match what we expect. We get weary and weariness causes us to lose heart. If we're going to be honest, that's what the enemy is after we lose heart. And, and if the enemy can get you to lose heart, then quitting looks quite tempting, doesn't it? I'm just, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And he says something that really struck me, it continued in verse four, after he says, I've had enough, he says, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors which I think is kind of an odd statement. I don't know. I've never, I've never prayed that. I've never thought of that before. Like, I'm no better than my ancestors, right? That seems like an, like an odd thing because 
Here's why it's odd to me, because all of a sudden, this mighty man of God is judging himself, not by his own obedience, not by his own disobedience, right? But all of a sudden, he, he, he makes a measuring stick that uses everyone else as the standard of measurement. All of a sudden, it's not about like, God, I've, I've been trying to do what you've asked me to do. I've walked in obedience here. He's just like, I'm no better than them. The reality is that we can go off mission when we assume that we've failed God by failing to meet our own expectations. We assume like, oh, I failed him and I'm not doing what I should be doing. But in reality, we've just failed to meet our own expectations. And we've created a measuring stick of saying, well, I'm like, this is everybody else and this is what they're doing and I'm no better than, than them. And we start to play the blame game. We start to blame ourselves for not doing things that God never even asked us to do in the first place. You ever been there? You're like, man, I'm just stinking at this. I can't do this. I'm, I'm not Christianing well. I'm not fathering well and husbanding well and, and mothering well and all of these different things. And the reality is, is that many times we blame ourselves for not doing things that God, that God didn't necessarily say, I need you to be perfect in this place, in this area of your life. There's a word for someone. I wrote it down. And I think it's a word for someone in here this morning is this. There are some expectations of perfection that you have put on yourself that God never did. And you feel like you failed God, but you've only failed your own expectations of yourself. I'm going to say that one more time because someone in here needs to write it down. There are some expectations of perfection that you have put on yourself that God never did. And you feel like you've failed God, but you've only actually failed your expectation of yourself. One more thing before we move on. I want you to notice that in verse 4, Elijah leaves his servant behind. And he goes into the wilderness alone. Here's what I know to be true. Is that many times we tend to isolate ourselves when we need community the most don't we? We think, man, I just, you know what? I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm fatigued. I'm exhausted. I'm burned out. I need more me time. I need to just get away. I need to, you know what? You stay here. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing all, all by myself. Many times we isolate ourselves when we need community the most. The reality is that God never led him or told him to go into the wilderness. He did that on his own. He just decides, you know what, I'm going to leave you here. You stay here. I'm going into the wilderness. But sometimes, here's the reality. Isn't it true that we sometimes put ourselves in a wilderness that God never led us into? Oh, yes. I, I just need to get away. I just, I'm going to do this. I need to, I'm, and God's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not opposed to you getting away. In fact, I love it when you get away. But you're putting yourself in a wilderness, an isolation that I actually never led you into. And we start to look in it, like you, you, start to, you start to see how it plays out. First Kings chapter 19, verse 5. He goes days into, into the wilderness all by himself, and he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. I want you to understand something. Just that one verse. The angel didn't just touch him. It wasn't like, hey, buddy. Time to get up, right? Hey, hello, hello. Hey, oh, sorry, didn't mean to wake you. Like, it wasn't like that. 
Actually, if you look at the, if you look in the, in the, in the Hebrew, it actually means that like shook him awake. Like, dude, wake up, get up, dude. And maybe slapped. I don't know. Here's what I love is that God will sometimes shake you, not to yell at you, but to tell you to take care of yourself. I don't know if you've had experiences like this, and maybe, maybe you're going through an experience right now. There are some times where that which can be shaken will be shaken, so that which cannot be shaken will remain. You get to this place where God is literally shaking you, not to yell at you, not to chastise you, not to condemn you, but to shake you awake to take care of yourself. It's time to take care of yourself. I mean, this is literally what happens here. I love how God practically just cares for Elijah, shakes him up, and it says he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down. So he's got baked bread and a jar of water. God literally sends this guy a personal chef in the middle of the wilderness all by himself. He eats, drinks, takes care of himself, falls back asleep. The angel then wakes him up again (laughs) to take care of himself. Hey, wake up. Take care of yourself. Some of us have those, those opportunities, those times, those, those shaking moments of like, what, what are you doing? Like, you need, to, you need to eat, you need to drink. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 8, it says this, he got up and he ate and drank, this is the second time, strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. So he travels 40 days to a place that, he shouldn't have been in, that he wasn't led to. He wasn't told to go there. He just decides, I'm going to go 40 days in the desert to this place where I wasn't actually supposed to go. He's still running from his life. Just know that. Like, this wasn't like, I want you to go to Mount Horeb. No, he's just like, he's still trying. He's off mission. He is, he is not following God. He's overwhelmed. He's isolated. And now he's living in a cave. Do you know what happens when you're in a place like that? Nothing good happens in a place like that. Like, he's literally living in an echo chamber of his own thoughts. All he's listening to are the things that are going on in his own mind. Watch what happens next. Verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him and said... What are you doing here, Elijah? I, said, I don't think he really sounds like Count, Count Chocula, but... I've come to talk about I know I am. He says, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so God asks this guy like a very specific question. That's the point, right? Very specific question. Easy, to the point. What are you doing here, Elijah? And watch how Elijah answers a very specific question. Verse 10. He replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Did you notice that Elijah did not answer the question? 
Not at all. Not even in the slightest. Like the voice of the Lord comes to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? But the question that Elijah obviously hears is, why are you such a failure, Elijah? Why? Why are you such a screw-up? Here's my point, is that many times we will actually get off mission because we are answering the wrong questions. We're not actually listening and answering the question that God asks. We're allowing our own shame, guilt, and condemnation to ask us questions that we're, we're so busy answering. And God's like, what, what is going on right now? I simply asked you, what are you doing here, Elijah? And yet you're giving me excuses and all of these things and the backstory of why and your mom put your diapers on too tight and it was just horrible and like all, these, all of these things. And he's like, I just asked you a simple question. <laughs> and God has less of an interest in literally like recounting your past because he already, he already knows it. He didn't, he didn't choose a lot of it, but, but here's where you are right now. He's like, what are you doing here Elijah. And now that you're here, and I don't really care the whole story of how you got here, because I've been watching you, but now that you are here, as you're living on mission in the place where you've been placed, what are you doing here? And so Elijah answers the wrong question, and then watch how God gets Elijah back on mission, or at least attempts to. Verse 11, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So many times we think that we need, oh, I just need a new revelation. I need a new direction. I need new instructions. I need God to bring some correction to me, right? But God knew that Elijah just needed a fresh encounter with him. God knew that Elijah actually... He already, he already knew what he was supposed to. He already knew that God had a mission, a plan, and a purpose. I mean, they, they, they walked this thing out for all of these years. God knew that what Elijah really needed was just to encounter him again. In verse 11, it continues. It says, go stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. And then you've, you've heard this before, Probably. A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Now, I was reading it this week, and um, it was interesting when the God just shows you different things in his word. I've always read this and thought that Elijah was so busy looking for God in the wind. So in the, is God going to show up in the wind? No. No, he's not there. Oh, he's going to show up in the earth? No, he's not, not in the earth. Well, maybe he's going to show up in the fire? No. No, he's not in the fire. Like God sends earth, wind, and fire. And when you read it, what's interesting to me is that Elijah wasn't impressed by any of those things. You can read it for yourself. Like it wasn't until he heard the still small voice 
that he got up. It wasn't until he heard the whisper that he went out. It wasn't until he heard the voice of God that he stood at the mouth of the cave. Elijah was waiting for the real thing. He was waiting for the real deal. And he knew that 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 when he heard it, he would know it. And he didn't, he wasn't even affected by all those other things. And I don't know if you've ever been there before where you're just like so like, man, I, I don't need the trappings of Christianity anymore. I'm not waiting for like, man, I hope they sing my favorite song. I hope the, I hope the preacher has, the, has that good word. I, have you ever been in that place where like the trappings of Christianity just kind of fall to the wayside and you're like, I need an encounter with God. Not looking for church. I'm not looking for church as usual. I'm not even looking for those things that we kind of call Christian. I'm saying like, I need to hear God's voice. I think that, that Elijah is just waiting for the real thing. And, the, and he doesn't get freaked out. Like, like the wind's coming. It says it tears the mountain apart. That's some heavy wind. He wasn't like, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. I mean, just me, all of me is going to die. Like he didn't go out when the earthquake started. Like, oh no, this is good. Oh, God must be in this. He, he wasn't phased by the fire. It wasn't until he heard that small whisper that it got his attention. And he goes up and he waits at the mouth of the cave because he knew that he needed an encounter with the living God. And so God shows up and he speaks in the still small voice. And you know what he said? The same thing. The voice said to him in verse 13, what are you doing here, Elijah? Have you ever had God just speak the same thing again? Like you'd want him to speak something different, like have something new. I mean, like, is that all you got to say to me? Like, what are you doing here, Elijah? I know, I already answered your question. You had to ask me again. There are some times when God just keeps asking you and asking you and asking you and asking you the same question. And many times it's because we're not answer, actually answering the question. And he'll keep doing it until we reconcile with it. It's the same exact question as before. And then watch how he responds in verse 14. He replies, I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Okay. You may be like, well, that sounded a lot like verse 10. Because if you look in your Bible, I, I spent like a couple minutes going back and forth. It is exactly the same. Verse 10, his answer to, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same, same answer as, as he answers in verse 14. He has the exact same script that he's been rehearsing for the past 40 days in isolation, in the echo chamber of his own thoughts. He's just been rehearsing this thing. I can't wait till God asks me a question because this is my answer. I don't even care what the question is. I'm going to answer him this way. Elijah is stuck in his own narrative. My point is this, there is power in the story that you tell yourself. There is power in the story that you tell yourself. And you can read it in verse 10, you can read it in verse 14. They're literally word for word the exact same. Elijah has rehearsed his script so much that he's like at a, at a glitching out in his own story. He doesn't know how to get out of that narrative. He's, he just keeps doing the exact same thing. Verse 10, verse 14, it's all about me and them. He's like, well, I've, I've been zealous and they've rejected you and I'm the only one left and now they are trying to kill me. Like it's all about them and me. 
And I think to myself, isn't that what happens to us? That we forget to add God's track record to our current narrative in our own life. And instead, we choose a script that has written him out of our story. He's literally written God out of his story. There's no place, any, it's like it's them, them and me and I and them and they and my question is where's God in your story? Because maybe you're in this place right now, maybe you're in this place where it's like things are not turning out the way that you had hoped. You have been praying, pray praying, you've been expecting things to turn out differently and they're not turning out the way that you had hoped. But are you choosing to tell yourself a narrative that writes God out of your story? Because here's my point. I don't think that this story in verse 10 and verse 14 is the same story that Elijah was telling himself when he was running in the power of the Lord in the rainstorm. Dude, I think when he was running in the power of the Lord in the rain, he was like, God's amazing. This is awesome. Nothing could ever go wrong in my life. God's here. He sees me. He, he just acted on behalf and pray, praying works and hallelujah. He's waving his hanky. It's soaking wet, but he's waving it, right? He's excited about this. This is the story that he's telling as he's running in the rain. But this is the story, verse 10, verse 14. This is the story you tell yourself when you're running from your life. Think back, the very first verse of chapter 19. It says this, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. I have, I have this idea that the story that Ahab told Jezebel about Elijah is very different than the story that Elijah is telling about Elijah. I think the story, I'm just, I'm going like, to take some poetic license here. I think the story that Ahab would have told Jezebel is something like this. Jezebel, Jezzy, you, you won't believe this dude. His name's Elijah. Holy cow. He shows up, he calls a showdown. He's like taunting all for his him versus 450 of these like prophets of Baal that we've been like worshiping along and trusting. And like, this is absolutely amazing. He like calls a showdown and they're like cutting. They're doing all the things. They were dancing, doing all the right stuff. Nothing happened. This guy literally has his servant pour water on the wood. And then he calls on fire. And I had to back up. The, the fire was so hot. It was absolutely amazing. Burns up everything. And then he slaughters. All 450 of those prophets. He goes up on the top of Mount Carmel, gets in this weird position with his head between his knees, and he starts pray, praying it in. And all, I'm swearing, there was a tiny little cloud, and he, he sends his servant to me, and he has the audacity to be like, you better get going, because the storms are brewing. This guy is the real deal. I'm not kidding you, Jesse. Like, it is absolutely crazy. Not only that, I start I hitch up my wagon, and we start going down. I, I swear to God, I saw him beat. He ran past us. He beat my chariot with horses. This guy is a freak of nature. I bet Elijah's enemy was telling a better story than Elijah was telling himself.
Did you know that your enemy, the adversary of your soul, probably knows your strengths better than you do? Um, when we're off mission, I wrote this down, we will not only be tempted in our weaknesses, we will struggle in our strengths. Let me unpack that for a second here. And I think this is, uh, just go slow with me. Um, I know that we all have weaknesses. I have weaknesses, you have weaknesses. Um, and you will get tempted in your weakness. We know that to be true. We've, we've lived the, uh, enough life here on planet Earth to know that it's those consistent weaknesses that where we're tempted in. But think about this for a moment. If I were to rob your house today, I won't, but if I were, um, I will get into your house through the weakest point. Maybe an open door, you didn't lock it. Maybe you've got like a broken window, you didn't latch it, whatever. Like, I, I will get in through your weakest point. But think about this with me for a second. Any good thief, if you can be one, um, is not coming to rob your door. You're not like, man, I just, did you see the door on that house? Man, if that thing's open, I'm taking it off the hinges and taking it home. It's mine, right? Nobody, no thief looks at a broken window and be like, dang, that looks so good in my house. No, that's crazy talk, right? A thief gains entrance through your weaknesses, but he's really after your strengths. John 10.10 10 says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Let me, let me remind you, I know this is kind of simple, but I think when you, when, you, when you turn this into a spiritual truth, it is so powerful in our lives, is that a thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy what is most valuable in your home, your strengths. And as long as we, as Christians, American Christians, Christians, as long as we think that the devil has come for our weaknesses, we fail to realize what is really at stake. That Satan wants to ultimately steal, to kill, and to destroy that which will take you out of commission, that's what will take you off mission. And I wonder if in our obsession with, oh, like, where's the devil trying to get at me? Where's my open door? Where's this? Where's that? I wonder if the reason why many Christians these days are not doing a good job of locking their doors and fixing their, their, their faulty windows is because they're failing to realize that what, what, what the devil's really after. He's not after your door. He's not after your broken window. You're protecting your house because of the strength that God has in it. The, the most valuable thing, which is that God wants to put his super on your natural. He's after you on mission. He's after you tapping into that which God has gifted you for, put, put passions and talents in you for, for his glory. Satan's not after your weaknesses. He just gains access through them. He's really after what is most valuable. He's really after silencing your gifts. He's really after your strength your talents for God's glory. So please hear me. I know you all have weaknesses. I get it. And you always will. But living on mission is when we choose to work on our weaknesses so that we don't struggle in our strengths. 
Man, if you get anything out of, out of today, that take home, chew on, digest, realize that like he's after much more than just getting your lust issue. Like when you realize what he's really after, that's not going to be a problem. And when we, when we don't work on our weaknesses, many times because we think the devil's after them, he's after the strength of what God wants to do through you. He's after the, the strength of what God wants to accomplish through you living on mission in the place where he's placed you. What are you doing here? Why don't you stand with me? Interesting because um, he, he, he rehearses his script, right? He's got this, he's stuck in the script. He's stuck in this narrative. Um, and he answers God twice. What are you doing here, Elijah? He answers the exact same way twice. And the first time, God's like, you just need a fresh encounter with me. Get out. On the, I'm going to show up. You need, I'm going to pass by. You need this. But watch how the Lord responds to him the second time. The Lord says to him, verse 15, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. Pause that for a second. I love how God doesn't even coddle or even recognize Elijah's excuses. Both times. He's like, I'm the only one and them and they and me and this and they're trying to kill me too. And God's like, go stand on the mountain. I'm going to show up. You just, <laughs> gosh. And then he's like, what are you doing here, Elijah? Well, it's them and me and them, and they're trying to kill me too. And God's like, go back the way that you came and go through the desert of Damascus. The way you get back on mission is to go back the way you came. You need to understand that Elijah at this point was so off track he was, so, he was so off mission. He'd been running. I measured it. He'd been running from his life for over 120 miles. Straight up, burned himself out by running from his life, running from his mission. In other words, I think God's saying, go back the way that you came. But this time, run in the power of my spirit again. Sometimes we think like, oh, God's like, well, I guess I'm 120 miles off and I've done this and I've, I've messed up my life and this and my marriage, my kids and all these things. I guess I got I, I to gotta go back, right? I got I to gotta backtrack because I'm so far off course. And what, do I got to walk backwards now? Like, I gotta, you're not going to love me unless I go back 120 miles to make up for all of my, my past sins and all of those things. No, I think that God's like, no, 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 just, just realize this. When you were, remember when you were running in the power of my spirit? Remember when you were running in the power of the Lord and you were exhilarated? It was muddy mess and you beat a chariot. Remember that? Were you tired after that? I don't know. No, I've, nope. Or of yourself? How are you feeling? Pretty exhausted? <laughs> I feel like I want to give up. Because when you are running in the power of the Lord, it is life-giving. And when you are running in your own power, running from your life, from your mission, it is exhausting. He's like, go back, but just know that when you go back, you're running in the power of the Lord. It'll, it'll be like, like nothing. In order to get back is choosing to turn around and go back the way that you came, to go back to the point of your last disobedience, to move forward by going back, 
to go back to your first love, to go back to the things that you did at first. This isn't about guilt, shame, and condemnation and making up for all of your past. He's saying, I'm actually sending you now to the desert that you went to that I wasn't sending you in, but now you're going to be going through it in the power of the Lord. I want to leave you with this. His first instruction, go back, go back, go back the way that you came. But to what end? Catch this, verse 15. The Lord says, go back the way you came. And then it gets awesome. He says, go to the desert of Damascus. You were just in it. I know, but I've got a, I've got a plan. I've got a purpose for you at the end of this. He says, when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Mahola to succeed you as prophet. The Lord was calling Elijah to get back to living on mission because God had a plan and he had a purpose for this wayward prophet. What was his plan? What was his purpose? To anoint two kings and a prophet. Catch this. He was sent to equip the next generation. Oh, but God, what am I supposed to do? I just, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm just running here, running there. I love God's plan and his purpose. He said, when you get there, anoint two kings and a prophet to replace you. God is always looking to move us from isolation to investing in the next generation. He moves us from, I just think I need some me time, to why don't you just start giving out that which I have so freely given to you. So the question is this, what are you doing here? Mike? What are you doing here? Sylvia, what are you doing here? Ben, what are you doing here? What is it that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about? What are you doing here this morning? What are you doing here in the place where God has placed you? I know, I know, I wasn't, I didn't want to be here and them and they and me and I and all of those types of things, but God has a plan and a purpose for you that he's given you giftings and talents and passions. And I think many times he's saying, look, I don't care how you got here. I'm just saying you're here. What are you doing here with the thing that I placed on the inside of you? So Lord, as we worship you today, I pray you just that we have a fresh encounter of your spirit today, that it would just wash over each and every single one in here, those watching online, that you would just not only encounter us with your spirit, but that, cre- that question that, that just wrestles around on the inside of us would find a place to land. Lord, that you've called each and every single one of us to have a seat at the table, that you've gifted, that you've given talents and passions, each of us to play a role in a family the body of Christ. Speak to your people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's worship.